if you weren't anxious, there'd be something wrong with you, right? Like if you weren't nervous, there'd be something wrong with you. First, let's first acknowledge that nervousness is a good thing. Once we acknowledge that, then okay, now we can move forward and, and try to lower it down a little bit so it's manageable. But let's first start to flip that nervous anxiety feeling into a good thing, into excitement. Then we can start channeling it a little bit more and then it doesn't induce fear. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, we have another guest. It is mental coach Drew Morgan. Uh, he is um, based in Dallas. He's he's a, He coaches golfers, baseball players, athletes, group uh, groups of athletes, uh, you name it. He, he probably coaches it. Um, he, he brings some awesome perspective and, and, and some science-based knowledge, uh, to this conversation. And I just loved it. Um, yeah, I, I think you'll get a lot out of this. Uh, I love talking to people like this. I love talking to people in the sports psychology, the, you know, science community. Uh, it's just, it just fascinates me. Um, just how, how the brain works and how to apply that to golf. I think it's just infinitely relevant. Um, so I hope you get a lot out of this and I hope you enjoy. All right, let's get into this episode with mental coach Drew Morgan. Hello, Drew. Hey, Josh. How's it going? It's going well, man. How are you? Awesome. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm better now that I'm talking to you. (laughs) There we go. like the hat. Is that your logo? It is Precision Golf School, one of the the golf school that I do some mental coaching for. I, oh, nice. That's that logo. Yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. So I didn't come up with it, but thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll we'll just jump right in, and I guess if you if you wanted, if you if it's okay with you, you could start by kind of introducing yourself, um, giving some history, some brief background to how you got here. Yeah. So uh, okay, a little background about myself. <clears throat> uh, big sports guy growing up. Um, you know, played really any sport that I could. I played baseball, basketball, tennis, soccer, you know, skiing, you name it. Um, I've tried it. Well, probably not actually, but <laughs> you know, I try, I love sports. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah. And um, baseball is kind of always my best sport and went on to, to uh, be recruited to play in college. I got hurt my last game, my senior year of high school, uh, went to uh, a small D3 school to play baseball, went kind of the first day of uh, tryouts. I was arm was in a you know sling still, and I just didn't have a great experience there, and kind of fell out of baseball because of that. And I think ultimately, you know, struggled at that time period in my life, and um, didn't really hear about sports psychology until really after I finished undergraduate school in psychology. I learned about it, and I was like, sports psychology, like let's just combine those two, and and. Um, yeah, since then, you know, I went to grad school and now been uh, doing the mental coaching thing for about three years now. Yeah, so what caught you with, I mean, the sport part of it sounds obvious of how it caught your attention, but why did the psychology part catch your attention? <clears throat> I, I've just always been interested in psychology and interested in, you know, why we do certain things and you know, how the mind works. Um, and I think when I went through my undergraduate degree, I was 
probably starting to become a little bit more aware of myself and a little bit more aware of, especially that time that I struggled uh, when I was originally recruited to play baseball, my arm was hurt. I was like uh, realizing that was probably a bit of a depression that I was going through and some real confusion about like my identity. And, you know, I was always an athlete. I really uh, kind of resonated or, or leaned into the dumb jock stereotype. And then when it was like, okay, you got to actually do some academics, like you're not an athlete anymore. Uh, I was confused, I think. So um, hmm. I think that was learning undergraduate and just being interested in it. And it always stuck with hmm. me. Yeah. And, and it sounded like you used, you had a personal experience with the battle, the inner battle, I guess you could say to, um, to, so you had that as like a anchor point for how you relate to the topic. You know, it's, it's one thing to just be like, I like psychology, so I'm going to go do it. But you had a, a real connection to it, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. and I think we probably all have those moments in our life that we could resonate with. I think it was more just for me interesting to look at these periods of my life in a different lens and look at it maybe even a little bit more objectively than uh, I normally would have. <clears throat> yeah, interesting. So I wanna, uh, I, I, as I was kind of going through uh, your website and, and stuff and trying to learn more about you for this, I saw your injury situation and how that, that kind of led you down this path. But when you say identity and, and that and how players and of any sport get tied to it. And I know golf and you know, golf, how, how much players can identify as a golfer rather than a person playing golf. What have you learned in that realm that, you know, players struggle with and then, you know, advice for how to kind of not be there if it's, I'm assuming it's bad. Yeah. Right? It's really hard. I've learned that it's, it's, when you become wrapped up in identity so strongly, it's, you might be able to logically think, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a human being that, that also chooses to play golf, but especially if you're, you know, trying to make it, if you're in the, the mini tours or you're on the corn ferry tour and you're trying to make it like, that's your life. Like, and even if, as a collegiate athlete, like that's your life. And so it's really hard to separate that out. Um, but that's when you go into talking and, and trying to raise self-awareness of like, who are you as an individual? What, what are separate from your sport? Like, what are your values? What are your strengths? Like win, lose, or draw, what do you still have to offer as an individual? And so starting to raise self-awareness of that. And, um, then from there, you can maybe start to have them think more about interests outside of their sport, but. Typically, if they're a high achieving athlete and playing college or, or above, like they want to be focused on their sport um, and that's what's made them good. So, yeah, it's a tough, tough thing. Yeah, it's a it's a hard balance to strike. I mean, you got to be involved. You've got to you've got to be invested in it. it there has to be some selfish components, yeah. but um, too much uh, is can be unhealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, so. So kind of left turn a little bit, um, but since, since you have, I mean, you got your master's in, in, was it sports psychology? It was, Is that yeah. what it was? Right. So 
obviously you learned a lot during that process, but maybe since then, you said over the last few years since you've been coaching, what what do you do to continue to improve yourself as a coach? Do, do you do you do any kind of like research reading or is it just trial and error with uh, you know students? Mm-hmm. What do you do to improve more as a coach? I generally just you know, make things up and just try it along the way. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what I do, too. <laughs> well, you too. Good. I saw it on Instagram. <laughs> It'll probably work. Um, <laughs> that's right. No, I definitely yeah. um, I definitely try to keep up with the research and reading research. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a couple of um, uh, peer consultation groups that we meet regularly. We talk about research. We talk about ways that we're doing things. Um, it's also where we bring up any ethical issues that we might have with, with our clients. Um, you know, go to, there's, you know, the ASP conference every year, which is the Association for Applied Sports Psychology for listeners that might not know. Um, and they have an annual conference in sports psychology. I have some mentors that I lean on as well. Um, so I think that's, it's really important to me to come from as much of a research base that I can, because, you know, there's that this land of mental coaching is so unregulated. Uh, that I think it's important for me to, and, and those of us qualified in, in the field to, to do so from a research base, not just saw it on Instagram, sounded cool. Let's try mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And there might be some validity in those. Like they, that's not to say that those things might not work, but, you know, let's try to come from the research and what we know. And from uh, that standpoint, as much as we can. Yeah. Cause you're dealing with not, not surface type of stuff. You're dealing with deep stuff. I mean, you're, I mean, it's a form of therapy on some level. It's like, this is someone's personality. This is someone's vulnerabilities. This is uh, deeper stuff. Um, it's like, should be table stakes to like actually know what works and doesn't work and can, can hurt and can help. Uh, yeah. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And you know, just like, even if you don't go into the deeper stuff and, and a lot of clients, I won't, a lot of clients, it stays very surface and like, here's just some mental skills. But even if you were just a swing coach, let's say, and you didn't know what you were talking about and you messed up someone's swing, like that's going to have some serious ramifications on their life. And that's not going to be cool. That's not going to be fun for them. So even if it was just surface, I want to make sure that it's the best possible thing for them. Um, and I think that that's true of any service, uh, out there but you're right when you take it to the the next level when you go deeper with clients um you have to be able to be trained to go in and out of those depths and also be able to refer out if if needed yeah Mm, well said yeah okay so so with that being said obviously we both agree mental training is important i mean addressing the inner inner experience is very important something i i ask um, when I have guests on that are kind of in your sphere, the, about the importance of mental training, would you, if you could script players' lives, would you, which you can't, we can't, and, and <laughs> yeah. there's years before we meet them that they've been doing things, but would you, would you lay down groundwork of mental training first and then build on top of it? And is that kind of how you think about it? Or is it like that that's not, doesn't matter? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's some general principles that certainly can be taught in an early age um, that are important. And I think they're, you know, I think it's more probably about 
just good general mental health than anything else. You know, if you can learn that at a good age, a young age, you're going to generally, I think, going to be able to, A, just be more mentally flexible or mentally tough, whatever term you want to use, um, but also probably more amenable and uh, more easily understand some of the, the other mental skills that come along the way. So, you know, understanding how our thoughts may or may not impact our emotions and our actions. You know, understanding um, boundaries, um, understanding, you know, what you can and can't control, like some of those basics that are easy to understand in theory. Like I always say this to my clients, like none of this stuff is rocket science. Uh, it's all pretty straightforward. It's why I didn't go into math. You know, I'm not a rocket scientist, um, but it's really difficult to put into practice. That's that's where the difficulty comes. Um, so, yeah, the more you can start to learn and understand these things at an early age, I think the easier they become to implement as you get older. Hmm. And and when you understand things like controllables, uncontrollables, uh, self-awareness, that kind of stuff, it other things, like you're not so bent out of shape when something happens. And that's, you know, that's important whether you're five or 55 or yeah. 85. That's, that's important always, but the earlier, the better. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like asking that because it, it gets a, a good idea of how important should this be for everyone. Um, and it's I think it's important. I, I started growing the most when I started addressing inner inner stuff rather than just, it's just swing, it's just technique, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so, so with injury and your personal experience with it and the psychology of being injured. I mean, some people listening right now might be going through something like that. Mm -hmm. I've, I've gone through an injury minor, but still I was sidelined for a little while. What, what struggles did you go through with injury? What struggles are like psychologically, um, how does it psychologically affect players and, and what are ways to navigate through that process? What I struggled with most, and I think this is very, very common, is <clears throat> I felt incredibly alienated. I think it's very easy when you are injured to feel completely alienated because you can't do what you're normally doing. You're not connecting with your teammates or your coaches in the normal way. Coaches don't often really know what to do with you. They're like, you know, my first day of practice, I'll never get, I was just, they didn't even really say anything to me. This was at college when I was injured. They just like welcomed me and, I was like trying to hand out waters, like trying to find something to do. And yeah, but mostly just kind of watching and coaches didn't really know what to do with me. Um, and I, so I think that's one of the biggest struggles is that it, it can be really alienating. Now there's the teams and organizations that do it really well. They get that it's, there has to be a support system around that, around the injured athlete and whether it's athletic trainers or, just coaches that understand a little bit more or have like a, something for the athlete to do during practice to keep them feeling like a part of the team. Because as soon as you start to feel alienated, that's when you start to, to maybe become a little bit more depressed. You start to get more upset about your injury because you're like, now I'm more distant from my friends, my teammates. Um, and you lose more confidence because you, you don't really know what you should be doing. That whole slew of things can fall from there. So from an organizational standpoint, it's, that's really important. Um, 
then from an individual level, it's trying to stay engaged in some way. So whether it's visualization or, you know, just trying to stay in touch with your teammates, trying to you know, set goals and plans for what's coming up um, and just really like starting trying to stay engaged. It's going to suck. There's going to be times when you're upset and you're down on yourself and you're frustrated because the rehab's taking forever and that's, that's going to happen, but embracing the challenge and just keeping those milestones and, and pushing through, um, which again is really tough to do if you're on your own and you're yelling. Yeah. So it's an individual and a team group kind of situation yeah, so. on both levels. Yeah. Okay. So as a, as a, um, working coach of players, what's the kind of most common issues that players bring up? What it like, what do you see time and time again that, that maybe just golfers, since it's the mental golf show golfers bring to you or, or you experience golfers struggling with <laughs> on a regular basis? Um, so one thing, I mean, is handling pressure. That's especially in golf. That's always going to be up there. Um, other things, you know, how to, how to move the, the range to the golf course, striping it on the range. Can't, can't hit it well on the golf course. I think we've all dealt with that. Um, in that comes, you know, managing expectations. Um, but I guess if I were just broad strokes, it's performance anxiety and it's, um, uh, playing under pressure. Mm, yeah. Okay. So if someone comes to you and says, I'm super anxious about this tournament this weekend, or, uh, and, or I'm, I get super anxious walking from the range to the first tee. How do you try to address that? Mm, first I say, good. Like, hell yeah. yeah. Let's like, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. If you weren't, if you weren't anxious, there'd be something wrong with you, right? Like if you weren't nervous, There'd be something wrong with you. First, let's first acknowledge that nervousness is a good thing. Once we acknowledge that, then, okay, now we can move forward and, and try to lower it down a little bit so it's manageable. But let's first start to flip that nervous anxiety feeling into a good thing, into excitement. Um, and then, then we can start channeling it a little bit more. And then it doesn't induce fear, right? So when we're nervous, we're typically fearful about something or we don't we, we feel that our skill set is not going to be able to match the challenge ahead. Whereas if we're excited, we, we feel like our skill set does match it or even, you know, above the challenge. Um, so, yeah, that's the first thing is like, okay, this is good. And then we start to learn some techniques about focus, about um, relaxing yourself, whether it's through breathing, whether it's through staying present and mindful um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the number one thing and all the, all the greats have done that, right? Like all the, it's a myth to think that people like the greats didn't get nervous. I forget who said somebody, somebody said at some point that you mm -hmm. know, nobody's won, uh, a major tournament without their hands shaking on their last mm -hmm. putt. You know, it's like everybody is shaking on that putt, but, um, nervousness doesn't hit the golf ball you know you do so you don't have to mm -hmm. let that affect you in a negative way yeah and trying to trying to get rid of it is not as a first response is not um 
not helpful. It's acknowledging being aware that it's there yeah. and then going forward from there. Right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, usually I think people try to tell themselves they're not nervous or they tell themselves to, you know, don't be nervous or you don't, you have nothing to be nervous about. Like those things aren't helpful because you're trying to block it out. And whenever you try to kind of like stuff it down, it usually comes rearing back way, way stronger. Um, so yeah, you're That's absolutely right. right. Okay. So, so one of the, one of the things that most people probably, and I don't, I don't address this enough on this podcast with guests is the zone and flow state and that kind of thing. Um, you know, everyone has this desire to like, they know when they have felt that state and they know when they have felt that way and how good it felt and how easy golf felt in those moments. What, what do you know about, um, flow or the, or the zone and, is there direction to get closer to it? Is there an easy way to be in it all the time? Loaded questions, yeah, but yeah. you know, uh, um, <laughs> you know, what do you think? What yeah. do you think about it? If I knew all the answers to that, I would be a gajillionaire. <laughs> 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 yeah. But um, yeah. I mean, there there is obviously a good amount of research in this area. Um, the, one of the main researchers, Mihai Chixin Mihai, who wrote Flow, um, and has done a lot of research. I believe he recently passed away. But, um, you know, he, he's identified some key attributes that you have to have in order to uh, get into a flow state. Um, one of those being the challenge has to be just a little bit above your, your normal skill set. So it's got to be just challenging enough. It can't be too, the task at hand can't be too easy, can't be too hard. Um, there has to be a complete immersion of focus, right? When we talk about flow, typically we have more of an, what's called an external focus. So we're just out in our environment. We're not really stuck in our head thinking a whole lot. Um, so we know some of the, the foundational pieces of flow. I think there isn't a ton of compelling evidence for any protocols to help you get into flow. Um, mindfulness and meditation is something that's being investigated a lot. I, I can't say that I know all the research in that, um, but it does seem like it's pretty promising, at least, you know, nothing's going to definitely get you into flow, but it might increase the chances of flow. Um, so whether it's meditation or mindfulness, I, I think that's a good starting point. From what mm. I understand. Yeah. You're the, you're the second guest in a row to pronounce his name. I've seen his name. Can you say it again? Yeah. Uh, Mihai Chixin Mihai, I believe. It's very, okay. very. That's how the last guest said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So I, I might be onto something. Yeah. Not, it's a wild looking thing. Yeah. Whenever I saw it in grad school, you know, I just didn't even try to pronounce right. it. <laughs> right. So yeah, I um I I need to directly look into what he has written about flow. And um, but I, now that I've heard it multiple times and seen it, like this is what he focused on and how important his research was. Um so yeah, yeah I, I believe he has that, a but, book um called Flow. Oh, it's book. Okay. Yeah. I mean he's gotcha. It, I think it's all just a culmination of his research, but yeah. research. Yeah. Okay. So, um, one of the most common things I asked you, what the most common things you see from players, one of the most common things yeah. I hear from players is, is how to move on from bad shots. Mm -hmm. And, and that just like 
first sessions with players, I'm like, okay, what do you tend to struggle with? Why do you need a mental coach? That kind of thing. Well, I just really struggle moving on from bad shots. If, if a player comes to you with that situation, what, how, where do you start and how do you, um, how do you address moving on from bad things? Well, I think you, we, we first have to kind of back it up and let's look at what do you expect from your round? Do you not expect to hit a bad shot? Because you're going to hit a bad shot. So if you don't expect to hit a bad shot, then we got we to gotta address that. So it's about having appropriate expectations, um, first and foremost. Um, once you start to change those and, and start to understand that you can't control everything, you can't control where the golf ball goes. Let me repeat that for your listeners. You can't control where the golf ball goes. We like to think that we do, um, but it, it's impossible. My view is that it's impossible to win a golf tournament without a good amount of luck. You, you got to have a good amount of luck to, to win a golf tournament. You got to have the right balance. You know, um, was it Scotty Scheffler? Did, he, he won. This he just right? won. Yeah, yeah. He definitely had some good bounces and things go his way mm -hmm. on Sunday, whereas other people mm -hmm. didn't. Um, so if we can learn to accept that and learn to accept that we don't have full control over where the golf ball goes, it's easier than to accept bad shots. Then from there, listen, we're always, we're going to get frustrated if we hook one into the water or we you know, slice one OB. Um, that's okay. But you have until, you have a, a great, beautiful walk until your next shot to reset. And so I always say, like, take it in. Like, this is awesome. You're playing, like, it's beautiful outside. You could be stuck in, like, a hot wrestling gym, you know? It was, like, smells terrible. And, like, you, know, you could be in the wrestling gym. But you're outside in beautiful nature, like take it in for a second, enjoy the walk. Um, there's somebody else that said, what, uh, golf is uh, mm. a few swings on a nice walk or something, something along that line. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. I butchered that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think they actually, I think the quote is, a, it's a good walk spoiled. So there you go. The, the walk is the good part. The golf is the bad part. Yeah. So enjoy the good part. Yeah, and so that's where <laughs> mindfulness can come in. You know, it's just being mm. really mindful and aware and, and taking it in, maybe tapping into a sense of gratitude. Um, but then once you get to the your golf ball, then pre-shot routine starts to kick in. And, you know, hopefully that becomes automatic and, and whatever happened before fades in the distance. Mm. I love that. And I, I love what you said, appropriate expectations, not not like you need to force your expectations to be lower or be higher appropriate. Like golf is hard. You have a wide range of shots you could hit every single time. And there's a million variables that can cause that ball to not go where you want it to. So having logical appropriate expectations is a great first step. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, like <clears throat> your club face is like that instead of like this mm -hmm. and you know, mm -hmm. one little gust of wind might take your ball 20 yards offline. Um, so, yeah, it's just crazy to think we, you know, are trying to throw darts out there all the time. Right. Expect perfect. And and you mentioned pre-shot routine. So do you do you work with players and and try to get them into a, you know, like it should always be the same as every pre-shot routine that you do or everybody's routine should be the same or you should hit these checkpoints. What, how do you think about the pre-shot routine? I think it's, 
it's all personalized. Um, so not everyone, I don't have like a specific formula. I mean, I do believe in a, a few things. I, I don't believe in, um, I think where, where a lot of players get fouled up is in their um, practice swing. Cause they'll take like a full blown practice swing, try to clip the ground like they want to. And if they don't get it right, then they'll take another one. And that didn't quite feel right. So let me try another one. And then they go up to the ball and they're already uncomfortable. You know, if you watch the pros or the PGA tour or LPGA tour, like I don't think you ever really see them take a full swing. They're, they're usually trying to replicate some feel or, you know, just trying to keep themselves loose. So that's one thing is like, let's just keep one little feel or just like, just try to keep yourself loose. Um, but then where, what I do, I think the most important part of the, the pre-shot routine is the moment you step into the shot that I think needs to be very consistent, whether it's, you know, look up at the ball once back down, go, or look up twice, or you do, you know, like Justin Thomas does a little thing with his club. Like that mm -hmm. part I think needs to be really consistent because that's where, you know, you start to have some negative thoughts or doubt creep in, you know, bad things are going to happen. So if you can have that be really consistent and just kind of almost automate it, turn your mind off, mm -hmm. click into that. I think that's most important. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to the flow zone state yeah. where it's like, you're not, you're, you're, fully immersed in what you're doing now. You're not thinking about all these things you should have been doing, your swing, technique, mistakes, past, future. You're here for, in this moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's um, yeah. Uh, there's a guy, he's out here in Dallas. He's um, he got the Decade app. Are you, you heard mm -hmm. of Decade? Scott Fawcett. Scott Fawcett, thank you. And uh, I think in that he recorded like years of Tiger Woods pre-shot routine. And like, especially in the, the years 2000s when, when he was killing it, he was like some like 13 seconds, like on the nose, like every time. Um, mm -hmm. It was pretty crazy. Like he, he yeah. I think he's done that with a few other players too. Yeah. It's automated to the point where you know what you're going to get. You're, you're, it's as certain and predictable as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's valuable. Yeah. That's valuable. And sorry, just one more, I think why also this yeah. is so important. Um, I mean, slow play, you know, when it's out there mm -hmm. and it's so slow and it's so frustrating, and especially in, you know, some of these uh, junior tournaments or even in college tournaments and stuff, you'll have like eight people tee off in one box, like two foursomes. It might be a six or seven hour round. If you don't have a really good pre-shot routine that you can just kind of lock into in those moments, you're going to be frustrated. It's going to feel all out of sync. Um, so that's another great reason to like really work on uh, a good pre-shot routine. I love that. That's really good practical advice. And and on that um, kind of slow play situation, something I hear from a lot of players is is the situation they get into when it's slow. Like it's pretty much every tournament, it's going to be slow. And then the rules official comes up to their group and says, you guys are going slow. You need to speed it up. And I know this feeling of like, I'm going to take personal responsibility to make this entire group faster. I feel bad. I, it must be me. I take it personally. How would you address that with a player if they say they, they really struggle with slow play? Like they don't feel like they're the slow one, but they feel like now it's my responsibility. How would you kind of address that with a player? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I have a great answer because this is something I really struggle with. 
as well. Hmm. Like when, if I'm with a slow group or I feel like I'm holding the group behind, I get really anxious. I speed myself up. It, it really bothers me. So maybe I can turn that back to you and, and see what you would say. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, um, I, I think it starts in the same way you said about expecting perfect shots, like expecting your group to, to be able to be on perfect pace all the time is an, an inappropriate expectation. But then also you mentioned it earlier, um, about boundaries, having good boundaries. So if, if you do in fact feel like it was you that is slowing it down, then it's your responsibility to speed it back up. But if you do in fact know that it was not you that is slowing it down, it is that player, then you need to have those good boundaries that says it's their responsibility now to, to speed this up and, and having that relationship with whether it's, whether or not it's actually my responsibility to speed this entire group up. I, I think that's where that source of anxiety comes from is, um, is I, I fear being the, um, the problem in this, in this situation. And if you know that, okay, I am the problem in the situation, you can act on it. But if you also flip it and say, I am not the problem in the situation, then you can release that anxiety and speak the truth to yourself. I think, it, I think that's where it starts. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And I mean, that speaks directly into remembering that you can't control other people and what they do with, you know, to your point is the boundary bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's really good. I'm going to remember that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and right. And that, and that you could, I, a tangential thing is like how other players are playing in your group, how good or bad, are they annoying? Are they, you know, great, too talkative, whatever, having those good boundaries and that's really hard is telling someone, hey, can you chill out? Like I'm trying to play here or, or whatever. But but having those at least mental boundaries of that's what they're doing, this is what I'm doing, and yeah. that's how we're gonna that's how we're gonna go forward. And and it's like I'm doing my thing, they're doing their thing, and we're both cool yeah. doing that. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you're right. Like one of the best things you can do probably in that situation is just role model you know, quick pace with it by staying, you know, true to your routine, as long as you know, you're not taking eight practice swings, every pre-shot routine. Um, right. But yeah. Roll out like when it's your turn, you're ready to go. Like saying, Hey, let's play ready golf or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, so something I'm always interested in is tracking mental game improvement and, and giving it, you know, the mental game can be inherently intangible. You know, it, it, it is tangible. It's like, these are my feelings. I know what I'm feeling. It's very tangible, but tracking progress in it and seeing progress in it is kind of intangible. How do you work with your clients to say you were here now you're here? Do you have some kind of way to track it? Anything like that? Yeah. So with, Clients that I work with, I have an assessment that they take, um, you know, at the start, in the middle, and then at the end of a package that they might purchase with me. So that measures like six different key mental skills. So that gives us a little indication. Uh, but 
for all of my clients, I'm, I'm big on process goals, um, which are essentially little micro goals that you have 100% control of. So anything that you feel like is going to be really important for you to focus on in your upcoming tournament, like let's create a goal out of that. So it might be you want to have a consistent pre-shot routine on every shot. Well, then on your scorecard, maybe do a little check mark or, you know, if all right, you, you scored a four, but you on three of them, you had a good pre-shot routine. So we try to track it that way. Um, or, you know, maybe you just want to um, be as mindful as you can throughout the, the round and in between shots, look up, take it in, you know, then maybe just grade yourself one out of 10. So just trying to find little ways like that after a round to kind of grade yourself on some of these things that we've set as important to you also helps to divert your focus from your score and the outcomes and try to focus more on those things that we can control, which you know, ultimately will hopefully then take care of the outcome. Yeah, I like that. So what what three or four qualities do you see that most players embody? Like what what are the kind of the big ones that like the best players and maybe not, it doesn't even have to be players you work with, but you know, players to aspire to, um, what kind of qualities do you think are the top three or four? Mm, good question. Um, let's say it's, it's a calmness or a coolness, uh, a, a not a no panic. Mm, composure. Um, the composure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, whether it's, you know, I think of John Rom. John Rom's fiery guy, right? Like he'll, he'll get mad at himself after a bad shot or a missed putt, but he doesn't ever look panicked. It doesn't look like those emotions take over when he gets to his shot, he's back and composed and, and completely focused. Um, so that's why, you know, going back to like emotions, I don't care if like you're fiery or you're upset. Like, I don't think everybody has to be Brooks Kepka out there. Um, but being composed in the moment, that, that is important. Um, I think uh, self-awareness. So self-awareness in terms of what you, knowing what you're really good at and what you're not as good at and playing to those strengths. Um, so if you know, you, you know that you're great with your wedges, like play to your wedges more, whatever it is. I think you see a lot of players do that. Um, composure self-awareness i mean i guess you would have to say it would be confidence right like it's a self-belief um that no matter what it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. uh, the self-belief or confidence that i'm going to go out here and hit every shot perfect it's the confidence that whatever situation i find myself in i'm going to get be able to get out of um billy horschel this past weekend on sunday he was grinding I mean, he hit, I, I don't know if you watched, did you watch it yesterday? I didn't catch it. Well, no. I think he, it was hard though. Oh, I heard it was brutal. Um, and yeah. I think he started off tied for the lead that day on Sunday, but he was going up and down, up and down. And ultimately he had a, a putt on 18 to, to tie it. Um, and you could just see like, he didn't hit great shots all the time, but he, when he got to his ball, he felt it looked like he, believe that he can get himself out of it. And he normally did. So I think self-belief mm. that you can get out of it. You can grind. Um, yeah. 
Okay. I like those three. I like composure, self-awareness, and confidence. I mean, I, those are awesome. Um, if you can, if you can embody those, you're, you're going to be able to handle anything that's thrown at you. Yeah, I think so. So, so with that self-belief and this is hard and I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but how, (laughs) how would you go from lacking self-belief to gaining it? Like, is it something that you can build and improve or is it something like, "Mm, you're not a confident person you're kind of going to stay there. Yeah, you can, uh, but it requires hard work. You, you can't, I don't think you can just think your way to self-belief. You have to work hard and like at the physical game, I'm saying like go out there, practice, like, you know, go hit the weight room, like do all the things, do the hard things. I think that's how we gain confidence is in doing the hard things, whether that's in, to get better at golf or just in life, like when you do hard things, I feel like you get more confident because you have a higher level of respect for yourself. And you're like, okay, I've done these hard things. I can go out here and do this. Um, so that's making sure that your practice routine, the, the way you, you practice is focused and is not just going out there and beating up balls on the range for an hour that serves no purpose, like working hard at it going through your full pre-shot routine, creating little competitions, putting pressure on yourself. Um, yeah, mm. I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, I like that. There's other ways, other little tips and techniques, but I think that's the biggest mm. one. Yeah, having it based on that solid foundation. Yeah. Yeah. So last question, um, something I like to ask. It's a silly question, but I, I like the responses it can get. Um, what percent of golf is physical and what percent of golf is mental? Um, they're both a hundred percent. I don't, I don't know how you could, the mind controls everything, right? It all starts in the mind. Uh, but we hit the ball with our body. So it, I think, you know, we separate mind and body all the time, but we can, I don't know why we can't just think of it as one thing as well. Um, yeah, I would say they're, they're both a hundred percent. Yeah. Ah, that's that's a, every it's, <laughs> maybe that's a cop out. I, I love know. that. I mean, everyone answers it so different, and every answer sounds equally perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so then, what's a tangential question? And sorry, I, I said that was my last question, but what <laughs> what's the what's the difference? This is not even sports psychology anymore. This is just psychology. Yeah. What's the difference between the mind and the brain? Hmm. Is there? I mean, do you, do you perceive a difference? Well, when you say that to me, the mind is an individual has a mind. Everybody has a brain. So hmm. it's my mind. I have a brain, but it, I also have my mind. You have a different mind than mine, but we both have brains. Yeah. So a mind oh. consists of beliefs, values, you know, your memories, you know, all, all of that, all, all of the stuff, all the baggage. Um, whereas a brain is the anatomical part. Interesting. Okay. That's all right. That's where I, I love that. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, cool. I mean, you're, you, you know more than me. So I, I just, I like, I like that kind of yeah. that thought. Okay. Well, where can people find you? What, what do you want to promote? Where can people follow you? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, mental coach Morgan uh, on Instagram. You can find my website. It's mentalcoachmorgan.com. Um, I've started up some group coaching, so I'm getting some small groups 
and trying to get it uh, of the similar age range and sport. So I've got some golfers right now to be starting that group up here in a couple of weeks. So if you're a golfer and want to go through this 12 week uh, program to develop your mental toughness uh, with other like-minded, similar aged athletes, give me a holler. You can check it out on my website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Drew. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Coach Drew. I know I did. Uh, I, I definitely learned. I, I leave that conversation knowing more about it, knowing more as a golfer, as a coach, uh, just someone that um, needs a better way to relate to golf. And, and I, just these conversations, just I can't get enough of them. So I hope you can't either. Um, and I just want to take a moment to remind you that myself, Drew, we're not your psychologists. We're not your therapists. We're not, um, if you, if you need help, you should either see someone like Drew or myself, or you should, you know, go to, if you, if you need deeper help, um, and I'm talking real psychological help, you should, you know, seek out a therapist, seek out a, you know, psychiatrist, that kind of thing. Um, this, this podcast does not substitute for that level of help. Um, I, I feel the need to say that, uh, I don't think you think that, but I just feel the need to, to be upfront about that because it's, it's important, um, to get help if you feel like you need help. And, you know, on a less deep level, it's important to get golf psychology help, golf mental coaching help. If you feel like you need it, um, the podcast can only do so much. So if you feel like you need it, then you need to prioritize your own golf game and seeing someone like Drew or someone like myself or someone like uh, Coach Rick Sessinghouse from last time or uh, Raymond Pryor or um, Dr. Joseph Parent or or whoever, or even Lou Stagner. I mean, he, he coaches players too. So seeing someone like that and, and taking your game into your own hands, something I've heard a lot recently is the best players don't leave their minds up to chance. They, we all work on our our bodies, our crafts, which is our golf game, our technique, that kind of thing, and our minds. Those are the three areas. Don't leave those three up to chance. The best players don't leave those up to chance. So take them uh, intentionally and take them into your own hands. Okay, that's my spiel. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Coach Drew. I, I'm going to keep on trying to get more interviews going in the future. I've got some lined up already, and I just I want to keep doing this. So um, this is awesome. I really enjoy this, and I hope you do too. So thanks for continuing to tune in to The Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols. Catch you guys next time.